if they hadn't resolved this conflict, they could not have rebuilt the wall. Lord, there are conflicts in our lives that keep us from rebuilding the wall. Lord, help us to hear these words in those ways for our rebuilding projects, whatever they might be, and for the church rebuilding in every area of our life that needs rebuilding. So pour into these words that I have to say. May they be acceptable and pleasing to you. May they speak to our hearts in the place of most need and the place that you want us to hear the most. In Jesus Christ's name we pray and ask. And everybody gathered together here and at home said, Amen. I invite you to follow along with the Bible app, the new version, and being able to follow along with that and see all the notes and all of the things that are there to see. So this week is all about conflict resolution. After working through the opposition from the outside and the inside now, Nehemiah 5 finds the Jews faced with the very real possibility that the wall might not be rebuilt due to some conflicts that have arisen between members of Nehemiah's own team. OS says the success of our own rebuilding process is largely determined by how we deal with conflicts that come. You see, we can do everything else according to the plan. However, if we continue to cut what can be untied, we will never see our efforts come to completion. That's also true in rebuilding broken relationships. You see, relationships like shoelaces can, can be tied again if they're not severed. And what does that mean? Well, you know, there's a story in the book that he talks about shoelaces and, and, uh, and, this, and this kid who keeps tying his shoelaces again and, and he just keeps getting more and more knots. And so instead of figuring out how to get the knots out, he just cuts his shoelaces every time until they're too short to fit in the shoes. But maybe you've had the experience at some time in your life when you, you get knots in something like a cord outside or your Christmas lights or some other kind of rope and you've got these knots in it and you can't seem to get it out and you're just so frustrated that all you want to do is cut it. You just want to cut it. The knot's so bad or the chain like on those really small chains that go, you know, the wood cheap chains and they get a knot in it and there's no way to get it out. And your daughter wants you to fix it. You just want to cut it and start fresh. But really, you need to do is if we have any hope of rebuilding, we have to leave our scissors behind and avoid the temptation to cut off the gnarled knots of our twisted relationships instead of untwisting them and making them whole again. See, successful rebuilders know this. So when tensions build up, it takes patience and perseverance, determination to dedication in these intense situations to untie. That's exactly the skill that Nehemiah uses here. Never cut what you can untie. Say that with me. Never cut what you can untie. Say it again. Never cut what you can untie. It may take longer but most things can be untied instead of just being cut. It all begins in the first verses of chapter 5 when the people stopped working on the wall and began arguing with one another. 
At the same time, they were stacking the stones of the physical wall around Jerusalem. They were stacking up the stones of the invisible wall of resentment between each other even higher than the wall was. And Nehemiah was faced with an escalating situation that threatened to quickly spiral out of control and divert the focus of rebuilding. So what happened to cause this? Well, the conflict arose because of a famine. Verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order to, for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And that forced many of the workers to mortgage their homes and belongings. And others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And then taxes were choking the life out of them. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. And if that was not enough, their own Jewish friends who had loaned them money in their time of need were charging them high interest rates on their loans, making them virtually unable to repay. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And you can imagine how all of this wreaked, wreaked havoc on the morale of the rebuilders. And it's no wonder that Nehemiah cries out and says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. The situation desperately needed someone skillful in the art of conflict resolution. Because if they could not resolve this, then the ultimate goal of rebuilding the broken wall was not going to happen. This was a critical time in the rebuilding process. And Nehemiah knew this was no time to cut what could be untied. So Nehemiah would have to get to the knots of this conflict so that everyone could get back to the task of rebuilding. That's what they were there to do. So Nehemiah demonstrates four principles that when put into practice can solve conflicts. Because Nehemiah knew this. There is a time to back off there is a time to stand up, there is a time to give in, and there is a time to reach out. Back off, stand up, give in, reach out. So first, Nehemiah began his conflict resolution by first backing off. And there was a reason he did this, and we should too. He had his own words become very angry. But he was wise enough even though maybe you and I aren't so wise sometimes, to know that when anger rises up in our hearts, the best thing that we can do is to ponder. Other versions say to give serious thought. Verse 7 says, After thinking it over, I brought charges against the officials and the officers. Now Nehemiah was just like us. His initial response to the conflict with his team was anger. He admits that. I, I admit that when it happens to me, when we can't move forward in something, I get angry, frustrated. 
It comes out. I slam something down. He doesn't try to conceal that. He doesn't make excuses for it. He didn't try to minimize it or disguise it. He simply admitted it. And what was he so mad about? He wasn't mad at his people. He wasn't mad at their actions. His righteous anger was because his people were engaged in acts against one another that completely opposed the teachings of the Torah. You see, the the Jewish Bible spelled out exactly if you lend money to the people who are poor that they should not charge interest. Deuteronomy 23.20 And Nehemiah was angry because his people knew better. They were clearly and deliberately disobeying God's clear teachings, which in turn was causing dissension in the ranks, and if it didn't stop, it was going to cause dissolution of all that they had done. So, Nehemiah, instead of rushing to confront the wrong, Nehemiah being wise, even in his anger, backed off to give himself some time to think. You see, if if we're honest, some of our own conflicts are never resolved because we don't back off and take time to think. Instead, we rush in, armed with all kinds of clever ways of excusing our anger. Then we blame the other for making us act like that or pushing our buttons. We blame the other for our own outburst or we repress our anger instead. And like a cancer, it eats away at us until only bitterness is left and finally it has no other place to go but out. But Nehemiah didn't do either of those things. Instead, he gave his situation serious thought. The phrase actually translates two words meaning to counsel or give advice and the inner man or actually translated heart. It's used more than 500 times in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was literally saying, I backed off and listened to my heart. And by backing off and listening to his heart, he ultimately found a way to lead his people back to the wall and their work. Because in spite of the conflict and in spite of his own anger, Nehemiah never lost sight of his ultimate goal and purpose, and that was to rebuild the wall, not engage in the battle, like we talked about last week. Second, there's a time to stand up. Say stand up. Stand up for a second here in the sanctuary. At home, you stand up too. All right, sit back down. That was enough. After Nehemiah spent that important and valuable time of backing off, he moved to the next step in conflict resolution, the time to stand up. That's exactly what he did. As he stood up and boldly confronted those he believed to be in the wrong and started this conflict. I told them, you are all taking interest from your own people! Exclamation point. I also called for a large assembly in order to deal with them. At this they were silent, unable to offer a response. So I continued, what, are you, what you are doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of your God? Nehemiah rebuked the elders. 
It's important to remember that in conflict resolution, it never means backing off and giving in no matter what. Conflict resolution is not a passive thing. Jesus addressed this in His well-known sermon on a hillside when He said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace lovers. Peacemakers requires action. It's not passive. Yes, we should love peace, but not sacrificing at the cost of what is right. It's too many times we just give in because we don't like conflict. Nothing ever gets resolved. Who doesn't like conflict in this room and at home? Raise your hand. You don't like conflict. Oh, there you go. That's a good percentage of you. So you're starting to tune out right about now because you're like, I don't like conflict. I don't want to talk about this. Nothing ever gets resolved. And so OS says that the sad truth in many relationships today is that too many simply cut what they could have untied. You see, some are quick to criticize instead of confront. Others seem to find joy in condemning. And others are quick to give their own self-righteous counsel. And finally, some find it more convenient to simply cancel out of the relationship altogether instead of dealing with the conflict. Consider the words of Paul in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, up on the screen. He called on us to restore the one who is in the wrong and to watch out ourselves. You see, the Greek word for restore in our Bibles used here is actually a medical term. It was used to describe like a a broken bone that has to be set into place before it can mend and be useful again. You ever broken a bone? Ever had that experience? First thing you got to do is set it. You got to put it back into place before it can be able to heal, and that's going to be a painful experience. I broke my elbow when I was uh, riding on a skateboard behind a car. That's not a good experience to duplicate. That's when the car goes around the curve and so your skateboard goes out into the road. So it's either take on the car coming this way or hit the ground on the pavement. So my elbows went right to the ground and hit on it. I didn't even know it was even broken. I just got a fever and laid there for a while. I wonder why my arm wouldn't move like this. I have a stick shift. I over my stick shift, my broken arm, my broken elbow and everything. I didn't know what a broken bone felt like. The day after that, hurts. But only the great physician can truly mend relationships, but we have to get our bones properly aligned so that God can do that healing work. And the, the thing is, it's often painful but necessary, as some of us know from the experience of setting a bone. If you don't set it right, it will never work the same way again. When we continuously back off and don't stand up, our conflicts tend to stay broken. We want to avoid pain at any cost, but we actually cause more pain down the road in our relationships. And on the other hand, we have all witnessed unresolved conflicts that are results of someone standing up most of the time, usually in anger, without first backing off to listen to their heart. You've got to have both, or it's not going to work. So in conflict resolution, it's never a matter of either or, but both and. Third, there's a time to give in. To give in. 
You see, in conflict resolution, the time we take to back off and then we stand up should be followed by a time to give in. Say give in. Give in. Some of them like to do it all. Giving in sounds like a weakness, doesn't it? And Nehemiah challenged his Jewish brothers. But if we listen closely to his words about to come, we can hear him being in a peacemaking place in these words. He says in verse 10, I myself, along with my family and my servants, am lending them money and grain. So he's doing it too. But let's stop charging this interest. Nehemiah is saying it's time to give in. And I'm going to make it right too. He's identifying with his people and demonstrating he was willing to follow through with the actions that he's asking them to do. See, Nehemiah was not showing weakness here. Instead, it was just the opposite. He was showing strength. In fact, it takes more strength sometimes to give in than it does to stand up. Jesus taught us that many times. Almost all anyone can stand up. But those who truly want to resolve conflicts know there's also a time to give in on a certain issue for the greater good. You see, we must also allow others to save face in the process of conflict resolution. If your only goal is to rub somebody's face in it and to make sure that they know that they're wrong or you feel that they're wrong, it'll never work. And if you do it in public, especially, it's the worst. And there are times when giving in on non-essentials is the best policy. It's also best to lose some smaller skirmishes and battles to win the war. For instance, over the last several weeks, we dropped RSVP. There seemed to be pushback against it. People didn't want to do it. I mean, it takes two seconds to click the button and then to do it. But for whatever reason, that became a piece that seemed to be something that caused problems. So I dropped it. Is it essential to worship? No. Is it essential to being able to know where everybody sits so if something happens we can do it? No. I just place you where you are. I have to write you down. Shelly has to make new lines to write you on the list. Yeah, it's more hassle, but it's not essential. Same with face masks. Some folks have come to me and said, you know, I had a really bad reaction to wearing a face mask and it really freaked me out. Can we wear a face shield? And I said, yeah, let's figure it out. Different section in 11 o'clock service. Sitting in a balcony. Other folks are like, I'm not ready to come back into that space yet, but I'm, I'm willing to go up somewhere up top. Somebody's up top right now. People are coming back to the sanctuary to sit in the balcony next Sunday and this Sunday. Those things are non-essential. They're great if we all agree to do them, but they're not things that win the war. Nehemiah was doing what he had been doing ever since he arrived in Jerusalem. He led by example. He never asked people to do what he wasn't willing to do. If he called them to work on the wall, he was there with them. If he asked them to pray, he was first on his knee. If they needed to work overtime, he was the last to leave. Now he's asking them to do the right thing. As privileged people 
for those who are less fortunate. And Nehemiah knew nothing was more important than seeing the wall rebuilt and the gates rehung. So he was wise enough to know there was a time to give in. The most important thing that we're doing here is gathering together to return and to rebuild. If I have to change some things to make that happen, to make it easier on someone who's truly going through something, no, we're not getting rid of masks. We can't do that. But there are lots of ways to figure out accommodations and things that will meet the needs of the people that aren't the normal thing that everybody else is doing, and that's okay. Because our purpose is not the rules and the regulations. Our purpose is to return and rebuild the wall. Not necessarily how we get there. So giving in the non-essential is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of hidden strength. And that can become contagious when we're willing to work with each other and to figure things out. Because too many conflicts are left unresolved because people insist they must win every argument. And there's a phrase that I often use in ministry is, I'm not willing to die in that ditch. If it's not important enough... I'm not willing to die in that ditch. There are some things I'm willing to die in the ditch for that are essentials, but there are many other things that we think are essential that are not. My need to be right or to win is not more important than our need to be in community. And they never learn the lesson of giving in. Because if you always have to be right, you can't give in. Last, there's time to reach out. Nehemiah was pleading. He was reaching out to his people. He was building bridges and not barriers in order to resolve the conflicts among the people. And he was trying to build a consensus among the people, which is a vital part of resolving conflict. And notice there was a sense of urgency in his voice in verse 11. Give it back to them right now. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and give back the interest on their money and their grain and their wine and their oil that you are charging them. He didn't want these folks to go home and ponder this. OS says that he was reaching out to them with compassion coupled with passion. Do the right thing now. It's the very pattern that Jesus shows us in our conflict resolutions in Matthew 18, which we use for Good Shepherd church conflicts. I encourage you, if you have a conflict with someone, you need to read Matthew 18 in these verses. So first, Nehemiah confronted his offenders in private. That was who he's talking to here. Not the people at first. Then he called a large assembly, it says, when his personal and private appeals didn't get any traction. And then he moved on to the public approach, and they finally listened when he brought it up in front of everybody who was there. What was the result of Nehemiah's fourfold approach to resolving this conflict? Verse 13, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. O.S. says the best practical illustration of Nehemiah's approach is found in one of the shortest books in the Bible called whatever you want to call it. Philemon, 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 whatever it is that seems to work best for you. 
Everybody never seems to understand how to pronounce it. I'll leave it to you to figure that out. It is 25 short verses and a letter from Paul telling the story of a conflict, of resentment, and eventually reconciliation. I encourage you to check it out. It's an easy read. These principles worked in Nehemiah's day. They worked in Paul's day. They will work in our day. They will work at home. They will work at the office. They will work with your friends. They will work at the church. They will work anywhere at any time. And the rest of the Bible is a text case example of the art of resolving conflicts from Joseph and his dysfunctional family, which we learned about in our uh, Wednesday night class during the spring, to Jesus himself. In Mark's gospel alone, there are others in conflict with Jesus on 26 different occasions. But Nehemiah's four-part formula for resolving conflicts only works when we use all four of the elements and that they're only used in the proper sequence. When only one is used or they're used out of order, they can make a bad situation even worse. For example, some people attempt to resolve their conflicts by only using the first step. They back off, but there is nothing more. They never stand up. They never give in. They never reach out. They just back off, and OS calls this the lose-lose approach to relationships. For example, how many parents find themselves caving in when conflicts arise with their children? They just back off. It's too much trouble. I'm too tired. I don't want to deal with this. They just back off. We've all been there. But if Nehemiah had only backed off, the wall would never have been completed. Or others play the game by only using the second step. They stand up every time. And that's all they do. They are right and there's no room for argument. That is called the win-lose approach. It never works. And it goes nowhere. These people only have a relationship if they win every single point and the other person always loses. Then there are those who attempt only the third step. They never back off. They never stand up. All they do is give in time after time. This is the lose-win approach to reconciliation. Sometimes this is a low sense of their own self-worth that the only way people will accept them or relate to them is that they acquiesce to whatever everybody wants. They never stand up for themselves. They never share their own views or their own opinions or their own beliefs or wants. So you have to use all four. Back off, stand up, give in, reach out. Say that with me. Back off, stand up, give in, reach out in the right order to have a win-win for everyone. And Jesus, most of all, wanted this win-win with us. You and I were in conflict with Him, with His purpose, His plan for our lives. And we chose to go away and do our own thing. As Romans 3.23 tells us, for all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what did Jesus do to resolve this conflict? And bring us back into a restored relationship with Him? Well, first, 
Jesus backed off in his darkest hour and in serious thought prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with all his heart to continue his mission. Next, he stood up before Caiaphas, the high priest, then Herod, and then before Pilate, who had the power to free him. And before all his accusers, he stood up when asked, Are you the Son of God? And he boldly said in Luke twenty-two seventy that he was. And then Jesus gave in. He had a goal in mind to rebuild the broken relationship between us and him. He was tried and convicted, pushed and shoved all the way up the hill to Calvary. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was willingly laying down his life for us, for me. He gave it. And finally, Jesus reached out and became the bridge for us between a Roman cross and the gates of eternity. And his arms outstretched to show us that he loves us this much and wanted us to be reconciled to God. Romans 5.10 So you see, that Jesus in fact wrote the book on resolving conflict and restoring relationship. And he knew most of all that you don't have to cut what can be untied. And see, he was willing to work through the, the knots of our lives instead of cutting us out of his hearts when we failed and out of heaven. And if we would only take the time with each other to not be so quick to cut, but take the hard and do the hard work of untying, then we can have stronger relationships with each other too. So remember, never cut what can be untied. Amen. And so as we continue to live into Psalm 91 in these days, I need a new psalm. Somebody give me a new psalm. I, I think about Psalm 12, but I'm not sure. But I'm, I really want to, to do something different to get our attention again. So think of a new psalm that would be very good for these moments in time. But right now, let us pray this Psalm 91. Lord, thank you for the rest that comes when I choose to live in your shelter. I declare you alone are my refuge, my place of safety. You are my God. I trust in you. I pray you will protect me and my family from the virus. I pray you will cover me and shelter me. I thank you for your faithful promises that remind you will protect me. Help me not to be afraid of all that I hear and all that I see. Help me not to dread the viruses terrorizing our world. Lord, many are sick and more are fearful and anxious. Pray for protection for me, my family, my church, my community, my city, my state, my country, my continent, and my world. I pray, Lord, as I make you my refuge, that no evil will conquer us nor come near our home. Pray for protection by your angels wherever I go. Lord, I love you. I trust in you. Please rescue and protect me. Thank you for answering when I call. Thank you for being with me in trouble. Thank you for salvation and the hope of heaven. And everybody said, both here and at home, Amen.
Come to the river, taste and see. The Lord is good for a thousand generations. So hear these words of encouragement as we leave today. The God of Nehemiah is our God. The God who answers prayers. He restores and builds up. He turns wasteland into pastures, broken lives to rejoicing. Stand before Him and share the wonders of His awesomeness. And until we regather again, may the peace of Christ and the comfort of Christ be present with all of us, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.